0: Great, wonderful. Well, it's good to see you all here as we wrap out um, the study of Philippians. Um, this is going to be a sort of a whirlwind. We're not going to make it through um, the rest of the book with the kind of detail that we have um, done in the past or over the course of the past several months, but we are going to um, concentrate today on Philippians chapter 3 and at least touch briefly on chapter 4, and then I will leave it to you over the course of the next few months until we reconvene uh, in the fall to go ahead and finish out the book of Philippians. But for uh, those of you who are with us today, if you would turn to your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to take a look at this chapter. We're going to read through the entire chapter. It's 21 verses, but they're relatively brief, and then we're going to take a closer look at them. In many respects, this is the heart of this particular letter, and in many respects, it is the most popular and the most famous section of this very important letter, this, this ode to joy that the Apostle Paul wrote while in prison. But let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. So if you bow your heads, let's pray. O oh Lord, your word is like a tall lighthouse on the sandy shoal, protecting us from the trials and temptations of this troublesome life. Your word is the steady north star, guiding our journey from earth to heaven, Be with us now in its reading and hearing, giving us a vision of your glory, and setting our hearts on fire with love for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you would turn to Philippians chapter 3, let's go ahead and read through these 21 verses, and then we'll come back and look at them in greater detail. Paul writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We said that when we first started this study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, that this was Paul's ode to joy, that this was a letter that was filled with confidence and hopefulness, in spite of the fact that Paul was in prison at the time that he wrote this epistle. The circumstances did not alter the fact that Paul was one who rejoiced. Uh, This is one of the distinguishing characteristics of this relatively brief letter. It's confidence, it's hope, it's cheerfulness, it's joy. That's really the theme of the epistle to the Philippians. And that's what Paul returns to here in this third chapter, is he's beginning to wrap things up. As I said, it's a relatively brief letter by comparison to Paul's other letters, like his letter to the church in Corinth or his letter to the Romans. It's relatively short, and yet there is this thread that runs through from the first to the last, and it is the joy that he now experiences as a result of his relationship with Christ. Now, in order to understand joy, and for those of you who are at St. Phillips, or watched us online, you know, two weeks ago, I preached a little bit on this subject. We were talking about the authenticating marks of the Christian life, Jesus' great high priestly prayer, and John's gospel. And I mentioned that joy was one of those distinguishing characteristics or marks. But you have to understand that for every great Christian virtue that is offered to us as the followers of Christ, the world offers us a cheap imitation. And part of growing in Christ is being able to distinguish between the cheap imitation and the genuine article. I've sometimes said it's like buying your wife a necklace. Uh, You can buy her a gold necklace, solid gold necklace, 24 karat gold or 14 karat gold or whatever it may be, or you can buy her a gold-plated necklace. And what you will discover is that if she wears the gold-plated necklace, at first they look side-by-side almost identical. But the more she wears the gold-plated necklace, the more that gold begins to rub off. And eventually it leaves that greenish-black mark around her neck. As time goes by, it becomes quite clear, quite evident, what is the genuine article and what is the cheap substitute or imitation. So again, for every great Christian virtue, the world is going to offer us something that at first glance appears to be similar, almost identical, but as time goes by, it begins to wear thin. So let me just give you a few examples of that. The world offers us sex. Uh, That's one of the things that we see everywhere we turn here in Western culture. We are a culture that is absolutely obsessed with sex. We've got it on the brain, which, as one of my friends likes to say, is a strange place to have it. But we seem to be absolutely obsessed with it. It sells everything from women's lingerie to Uncle Ben's rice. We see it everywhere we turn. We hear it in all of the songs. And what's more, we use the language of love for it. In fact, in our culture, love and sex are oftentimes two interchangeable terms. But what the Bible means by love is not what the world means by that term. You know that there are four different Greek words which are translated into English or all translated as our word love. The one that is most popular in our culture today is the Greek word eros, from which we get the term erotic. And yet, oddly enough, that is the one Greek term that is found nowhere in the New Testament. And so when the Bible speaks of love, it's not talking merely about physical attraction. It's talking about agape, that self-sacrificing, self-emptying love, that love that thinks of the well-being and welfare of another first before the well-being of self. So the world offers us sex, physical attraction, all of that excitement, but Christianity offers us something that is lasting, enduring, love. Physical attraction, it waxes and it wanes, as we all know. Time goes by, we change. We don't look the way we did when we were 21. But love is something that endures. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So while our culture conflates those two ideas, the Bible separates them. The same thing is true when it comes to the idea of security. Ours is a culture that is obsessed with finding security. Whether that's security through wealth, so that you can have security in the time of your retirement, and you can do all of the things that you want. We speak, for example, of social security. Some people look for security from the government. The vast majority of young people in America today think it is the responsibility of the government to take care of them in their dotage. So we look for security. We want security. We want to be able to be absolutely secure in life. But the Bible is very clear, security is an elusive thing in this life, in large measure because we're finite creatures. None of us is going to live forever. And sooner or later, we all get sick and we all die. So rather than seeking security, physical security in this existence, the Bible offers us trust, not absolute security, but trust, reliance on God who promises to be with us In the good times, but also in the bad times, to never leave us nor forsake us. So the world offers us security. The scriptures offer us trust in God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The world offers us self gratification. Go out and satisfy yourself. Try to fill up the void in your life. It was Blaise Pascal who once said that there is a Christ shaped void that exists in every single one of us. And because the world hates a vacuum, we try to fill that vacuum, that void, with any number of things. Sometimes we try to fill it with sex in order to satisfy ourselves. Sometimes we try to fill it with money or with pleasure or with things. Whatever it may be, we're looking for self gratification. But what does the Bible offer us? It offers us peace. Because as I said two weeks ago in the sermon, you can have everything that money can offer and still be empty inside. The world is filled with people who have everything in terms of of money and power and good looks, and yet they are still not satisfied. They are still searching for something else. And yet there are people who have absolutely nothing that the world offers, and yet they have that peace which passes human understanding. We call it the peace of God. So when the world offers us sex, Christianity offers us love. When the world says seek security, Christianity says trust the Lord. When the world says find self-gratification, Christianity says we'll offer you that peace which passes human understanding. And finally, the world offers us happiness, and Christianity offers us joy. I pointed out that there's a profound difference between those two. Happiness is an emotion, it's something that we feel. In fact, this is interesting. The Latin word that is translated in English as happiness is the word fortuna. Fortune. It's a word that is closely associated with chance. And that's exactly what happiness is it is dependent upon chance, on your fortune in life if things are going your way. But joy, when the Bible speaks of joy, when Paul talks about joy here in this letter to the Philippians, he's not talking about something that is dependent upon chance. Paul really means a supernatural delight in God. That's what joy is. It is simply delighting in who God is and what he has done. And because God does remain the same, because he is not fickle, because he does not change, because he is the one who was and is and always will be, we can delight in him even when the fortunes around us are in turmoil. And that's what Paul is getting at here when he says to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice, be joyful in the Lord. Paul is telling us that's where true love is to be found. That is where true trust is to be found. That is where peace is to be found. And that ultimately is where joy is to be found. Now, somebody who's listening to me today may say to themselves, well, I really don't have any joy. Joy seems to be something that is missing from my life. Well, if that is the case, I want to suggest to you that two things have happened in your life, perhaps. One may be that you really do not have a life-giving relationship with Christ. You may not actually be a Christian. Look again at what Paul says, not in Philippians, but in Galatians. This is a very important passage. Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians, just turn to your left in your Bible. And you'll come to Galatians chapter 5. This is one of those passages that deserves to be underlined, highlighted in your Bible so that you don't forget it. And this is what Paul says. He's contracting those who walk according to the world with those who walk according to the Spirit. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, it's really interesting how Paul describes it here. He describes these attributes as fruit, and I always like to point out that fruit is something that happens naturally. If a tree is healthy, it will naturally produce fruit. An apple tree doesn't have to make a conscious decision to work at it. It's simply something that happens by nature, An orange tree naturally produces oranges if the tree is healthy. A pear tree naturally produces pears if the tree is healthy. And what Paul is saying is that if we are spiritually healthy, the fruit of the Spirit, that is, if we are in communion with the Spirit of the living God, and you'll notice that Spirit is capitalized, it's the Holy Spirit that we're talking about here, but the fruit of the Spirit, if we're in relationship with God, these things will occur naturally in us. And that's why I say they are the authenticating marks of the true Christian life. It's because it's not something that we have to work toward. It's not something that we have to run after. It's something that happens to us naturally as a consequence of our fellowship with God. And what is really interesting is that you'll notice that Paul describes this as the fruit, singular, not the fruits, In other words, Paul is not suggesting to us that if we have fellowship with God, he'll produce love in some of us, joy in some others, peace in other people, patience in some Christians, kindness in others, etc. It's the fruit of the Spirit, like a clump of grapes. This is the result of being in a relationship with Christ. All of these things, this is the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, many people will look at their lives and say, well, whoever personified all of those attributes? And the obvious answer is it was Jesus himself. So when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, what he's really talking about here is Christ-likeness. And Jesus was a joyful person. I think sometimes the depictions or the images that we have of Christ are anything but joyful. Sometimes artwork does not really capture, I think, the personality of Jesus. I think at the very least, Jesus had a tremendous sense of humor. I mean, look at the people that he gathered around him. Look at the men that he called to be his disciples. You can't help but laugh at some of the things they did, some of the things they said. But Jesus was long-suffering. He loved them. Furthermore, I think the fact that Jesus could gather thousands of people at a time to come and hear what he had to say, he must have been a very entertaining, engaging speaker. Sometimes we have this sort of sacrosanct picture of Jesus that that robs him of the flesh and blood. But Jesus was a joyful individual. It was one of the things that attracted people to him. He had a serenity about him no matter what even when he had enemies that were constantly sniping at him. Nevertheless, Jesus had a sense of joy, a sense of peace, a sense of transcendent cheerfulness. Well, Paul says that's what the Spirit produces in us, Christ's likeness. But if you're not a Christian, If you don't have communion with the fellowship, then you can't have these things. They won't occur naturally in your life. So if a person is not a joyful person, it may be, I'm not saying that it is, but one of the reasons may be that they really don't have a relationship with Christ. And as we're going to see, it's not a matter of having been raised in the church. It's not a matter of having been steeped in a religious tradition. It is much more than that. The heart of Christianity is not knowing about God As we're going to see, it's about knowing God. So ask yourself this question, am I a joyful person? I'm not asking the question, are you happy? I'm asking the question, do you have joy? Do you delight in God? And do you see these authenticating marks, this fruit of the Spirit in you? Now, what if you really are a Christian? What if you really have trusted in Christ, and at one point you had joy, but that joy seems to have dissipated. Circumstances have managed to grind you down. You become disappointed. There's been loss in your life, life, and there seems to be a loss of joy. Well, another reason why a person may have a loss of joy, a failure to delight in God, is because they may not be walking with God at this point in their life. See, part of finding joy is to have communion with God. It is, yes, to come into a relationship with Christ, but it is also to maintain that relationship with Christ. Not in the sense that you can lose your salvation, but you can lose touch with God. There is a sense in which we can wander. How does the old hymn put it? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's like Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. That son, when he rebelled against his father, never ceased to be his father's son. He was still his father's son, but he lost that sense of communion, that sense of fellowship with his father. Well, there are times when you and I, through our sin, through our wandering, through our rebellion, whatever it may be, lose our connection with God. We lose. doesn't mean that we cease to be his child. Once God saves us, he saves us for all eternity. Jesus said, no one will be able to pluck us out of his hand. But we can lose that deep, intimate fellowship. Paul makes this very point in Romans. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 14 for just a minute. I want you to notice the order of what Paul says here. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Translate, the kingdom of God is not just about physical satisfaction but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of God is not just about physical satisfaction. Those things are fleeting. You know how it is. You can eat a full meal, eat until you've stuffed yourself full, and you think you could never eat another bite, and three hours later you're hungry again. So Paul says it's not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness, it's about peace, and it's about joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. But there's an order here, and it's the order that I want you to notice. Paul says in order to have joy in the Holy Spirit, there first has to be righteousness. And that righteousness will lead to peace, and the peace will result in joy. So if you are a Christian and yet you do not have any joy in your life, you really don't delight in God. Again, it's not about happiness. It's about delighting in the Lord. If you really don't have that, one of the things you need to ask yourself is, am I walking with the Lord or have I wandered far afield? Have I, have I failed to spend time with him intimately? You know how it is. You can lose connection with friends, you ever had that? You had somebody that was a dear friend and years passed, and then one of you moved away and you lost touch? And you thought you'd never lose that intimacy, and yet somehow that intimacy was lost. doesn't mean that you'd cease to be a friend. If somebody were to ask you about that person, you would say, yes, that's my friend, but, but you've lost that fellowship with them. Now, that can happen sometimes in the Christian life, and so one of the things you have to ask yourself is, are you in that right relationship with God, that right relationship that leads to peace that results in joy? So Paul wants us to understand that for every Christian virtue, the world offers us a cheap substitute, but what he wants us to enjoy is the genuine article which is true fellowship with Christ that results in joy, true joy. And if we're not experiencing that, it may be that we really don't have that fellowship with Christ. And if we do have that fellowship with Christ, perhaps we have not maintained it to the degree or to the level that is necessary to truly delight in God. So then how are we to get it back? How are we to rediscover this joy? How are we to reignite the fire, as it were? Well, one of the things that Paul would tell us is that we need to dwell on the attributes of God. If joy is about delighting in the Lord, then we need to spend time with Him. The more time we spend with Him, the more we will delight in who He is. The psalmist in Psalm 19 says, The precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the heart. So one way to rekindle the flame, as it were, you know, if the flame goes out in a relationship, you need to reignite that relationship. You need to reignite that flame somehow. One way to do that is to spend time with God in prayer, yes, but also in the study of his word. Why? Because the psalmist says, the precepts of the Lord give joy to the heart. The psalmist goes on later on, a hundred psalms later, to say, I will rejoice in following your statutes as one who rejoices in great riches. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and my love will be in you. He said, I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It's really interesting to note that all three of those passages, those two passages from the psalm and that passage from the 15th chapter of John, all speak of joy, but they all speak of joy in connection with the precepts of God or the Word of God. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and my love will be in you. I've told you this, that my joy may be in you. The joy is connected with the commandments. So ask yourself this question, do I have joy in my life? No, there are times when we're unhappy, of course. But can you say, I delight in the Lord no matter what is taking place. When I think about him and what he has done, when I think about his attributes, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his power. Are those things that thrill your hearts and make you delight in him? That's what Paul was talking about. That's what he was saying to the Philippians. He's saying, look, if you really know God, you will delight in him. And that is a mark of the true Christian life. Now, it's interesting. Paul goes on from here to give us some autobiographical material and to explain to his readers, to the Philippians, how he found joy in the Lord. You know, Paul gives us an example, a personal example, and I think that's very helpful. Paul doesn't just talk in theory. He says, this is how it happened to me. Look at verses 4 through 11. He writes, though I myself have confidence in the flesh. In fact, he says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 3 that there was a point when he looked at having a relationship with God the same way a person might look at a ledger book. We said that righteousness, when the Bible speaks of righteousness, what it's really talking about is a right relationship with God. It's talking about being lined up with God. And Paul says there was a time when he looked at being in a right relationship with God in terms of assets and liabilities. If you've got a ledger book, on the left-hand column, you've got your assets. On the right-hand side, you've got your liabilities. And in order to remain in the black, in order to be solvent, what is necessary? That you have more in the asset column than you do in the liability column. And that's the way Paul looked at life. He said, yes, I know that I was not perfect. Every Jew knew that, that they were sinners. That's one of the reasons why they had to make sacrifices. The Day of Atonement had to be celebrated annually because people have a tendency to sin. And Paul knew that. So he knew he had liabilities in his life. But he believed that so long as he had spiritual assets that outweighed the spiritual liabilities, well, then God was ultimately going to grade on the curve and receive him into heaven. And let's be honest, there are many people who look at life that way. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not great. But then we go on to say, but I've done this, that, and the other thing. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. And then Paul goes on to list the things that he had once trusted in. He speaks, for example, of inherited assets. He speaks of his good name. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of of Benjamin. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm a Jew. I, I have a lot of liabilities, but one of my great assets is that I am part of the chosen race. I am God's chosen people. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in heaven and the sands on the beach. I'm one of those chosen people. Furthermore, he says, I'm not just any old Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that may not mean a lot to us, but it meant a lot to a Jew in the first century, particularly somebody like Paul. What's the significance of this reference to the tribe of Benjamin? Well, as you know, upon the death of King David, his son Solomon took over the throne, and Solomon was the one who built that magnificent temple. But Solomon married foreign wives, and these foreign wives led him astray. And after his death, the kingdom the great dynasty of David, was divided. It was divided. And we're told that two of the tribes remained loyal to the Davidic religion, to the true faith and worship of Israel. And the other tribes went off and did their own thing. The tribe that remained loyal to Judah was the tribe of Benjamin. So when the other tribes went off and did their own thing and became the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom, which is a much smaller kingdom, remained in Jerusalem and offered sacrifices there on the holy mount in obedience to God's command. One of those tribes, the one who was willing to stand against the majority, was the tribe of Benjamin. So that's what Paul is talking about. He said, look, My family has a rich history. I was a Jew. I'm an Israelite, part of the chosen people. And furthermore, we were the people who remained loyal to God when the vast majority of the population did not. This would be Paul's way of saying, if I can put it in our own terms, I am of the people who came over on the Mayflower. We came over here. We were the first people to land here. We came here. We established a life here we built, we're part of the founding fathers of America, and they've got a long, wonderful tradition, family history throughout the nation's history. That's what Paul is saying. I'm I'm one of those. I can join every hereditary society that is offered. I'm a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, or the Sons of the American Revolution. I'm a member of the Society of the Mayflower. I'm a member of the UDC. I'm a member of whatever it may be. That's what Paul is saying. Those are my assets. Look at my history. Look at my family heritage. And not only, he says, do I have inherited assets, I have earned assets as well. He goes on to say that I was not only circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Now I know the Pharisees have fallen on hard times in our day. When we think of the Pharisees, we think of people who were, for the most part, hypocritical. But the Pharisees were a highly respected religious sect in first-century Judaism. They took seriously the law. They followed it to the letter. And furthermore, becoming a Pharisee was not something that was forced upon you. It was something that you did by choice. You took on this responsibility. I think of Martin Luther, who made a vow that he would become a monk, and he decided to become the strictest order of monks in the Middle Ages, the Augustinians. And there were great sacrifices that were required in order for him to do so. That's the way it was for Paul. He was a Pharisee. He studied the law, and he was not just a Pharisee. He said, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. In other words, he took it seriously. He wasn't lukewarm. He was white hot. He not only professed with his lips, he believed it all in his heart to such a degree that he was willing to go out and persecute anyone who he thought was deceiving others. So Paul was of a a rich religious family. They were devout Jews. They were not just Jews in word only or Jews in an ethnic sense. They were serious about their faith. He was a, a, a scholar, and he was zealous for the things of God and for the traditions of his ancestors. And yet, here's what he says. But whatever gain I had, verse 7, I now count it as loss. In fact, he goes on to describe it as rubbish. I count all of these things as rubbish. Refuse. Some translations, and this is more accurate, dung. All of these things I regard as dung. Now, how is it that at one point you gloried in these things, Paul? You were so proud of these things you thought these were the things. That, they, 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 they didn't mean that you were perfect, but they certainly were assets that outweighed all of those spiritual liabilities that you may have. Why is it now that all of a sudden you count them as rubbish? He said, it is because I have come to know Christ. In other words, he saw himself. There's this great line in Les Miserables where Jean Valjean, If you know the story, uh, he is caught for stealing silver from a bishop, and he's taken back by the magistrates to the bishop's house. And he thinks that the bishop is going to tell on him, and instead the bishop covers for him and not only allows him to take the silver, but gives him two sets of candlesticks worth infinitely more. And when he hands these things to him and the magistrates leave, the bishop says, I with this silver have purchased your soul for God. And there's this line in the book that says, Jean Valjean saw himself for the first time in the light of eternity. He saw himself for what he really was. The the veil was removed, and he saw himself for what he really was. And that is exactly what happened to Paul there on that road to Damascus. You remember the occasion? It's recorded in the book of Acts three times. Paul was on his way to Damascus, deputized by the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling body within Judaism. He was going there to arrest Christians and bring them back for trial and execution, men, women, and children. And why was he doing that? Because he said, I was zealous for the traditions of my ancestors to such a degree that I persecuted the church. Paul saw the followers of the way, which is what Christians were called in those days because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Paul saw the followers of the way, as deceivers who who were claiming to be Jews, but the followers of a crucified Messiah. And so he was persecuting them. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned in a public square, and the people laid their cloaks at Paul's feet. He's the one that instigated the thing. But as he was making his way toward Damascus, 110 miles north of Jerusalem to arrest these Christians and drag them back for trial and execution. Jesus Christ interrupted him. A bright light flashed around. Paul fell to his gro- to the ground. He could barely see, and he heard a voice crying out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul knew this was what is known as a theophany. This was an encounter with the divine. There was no denying it. But when he heard, why are you persecuting me? He's thinking to himself, how, Lord, am I persecuting you? Who are you? And the words came back, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And all of a sudden, Paul saw himself like Jean Valjean in the light of eternity. The very God he claimed to be serving was the God he was working against persecuting. And all of those assets suddenly they counted for nothing. They meant nothing to him. Some years ago, there was an outbreak of typhoid in a small village at the foothills of the Matterhorn in Switzerland, a little village called Zermatt. It's a very idyllic, picturesque little place. And the water that comes off of the mountain there is pure water. It's a a lovely little place. Um, But what was interesting was that they noticed that there was this outbreak of typhoid, and they could not figure out why. This sort of thing was not uncommon in the larger cities, but in a small village like this, they could not understand why. And so they went in to investigate, they brought in all of the government officials and so forth, and this is what they discovered, that one of the water pipes coming out of the mountain into the village had cracked. And the refuse, the runoff from the livestock and the fields was creeping into a hairline fracture, a hairline fracture in that water pipe. And typhoid developed and polluted the entire water supply. Paul suddenly realized that that is exactly what had happened to him whether it was a little bit of sin or a small amount of sin, the reality was it polluted his entire being. And it had the potential to kill him spiritually, morally, and physically. And yet what happened there on that road to Damascus was that God provided the cure, the means by which Paul could be saved, delivered from his own self-righteousness. And when that happened, all of a sudden, all of those things that he thought were so important, they became nothing by comparison to the knowledge of Christ. He discovered that there's only one asset that counts. He went back to his ledger book, and under that section where it had assets, he scratched out everything else. The fact that he was a Jew, an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, that he was a Pharisee, that he was zealous, he scratched all of that out. He looked over here, he saw this long list of liabilities, and now in light of his encounter with Christ, those liabilities seemed longer and more grievous than ever. And he only had one asset left, but it was the only asset that counted. Under that asset column, Paul placed Jesus Christ. And that's what made all the difference for him. And it's when he discovered that that was the only asset that he needed, that that was the only asset that counted, and that that was an asset that was freely given, that obliterated all of his liabilities and brought him into a relationship with Christ, not by virtue of anything that he had to do, but by virtue of what Christ had done on his behalf He said everything else looked as though it was refuse, and he rejoiced in the mercy, the grace, and the love of God, and that's where Paul found true joy. And what I want to submit to you today is that's where we all find true joy. It's when we see ourselves in the light of eternity. It's when we realize that God owes us nothing. See, that's the problem with the ledger book, If your assets somehow outweigh your liabilities, you feel God owes you something. You've earned it. But When Paul realized he had no assets and Christ freely offered himself on his behalf, that changed everything. Paul would have loved that hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved the Wretch Like Me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We have another great hymn by Augustus Toplady, an Anglican priest who sums up exactly what Paul is talking about here. It's that great hymn, Rock of Ages. Just listen to these words. Toplady is describing his own conversion, his own life. And this is what he says. He says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed Be of sin, the double cure, save me from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, know? Could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. When you look at your life, can you say those words? When you look at yourself, do you find yourself naked? Not clothed in your own righteousness, but naked when you look at yourself, do you, do you see yourself as helpless in terms of earning your own salvation? When you look at yourself, do you really see someone who is foul? I'm not asking how you are regarded or how you are seen by the world or by your neighbors around you. We all have this ability to put on a mask, to put up a show. But deep down inside, do you realize the desires of your heart? Do you realize that there is only one way to be saved? to cling to that rock of ages, that final stanza, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne, when all the books are opened at that last age, will you say rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's what Paul did, and everything else he countered as refuse compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. See, this is the heart of Christianity, and you'll notice that Paul says when all is said and done, he really only wants to know three things. He doesn't want to know about his family history anymore. He doesn't want to know about anything except these three things, really four things, but two can be conflated. First, he says, I want to know Christ, because he understands that that is the heart of Christianity. I've said this to you many times before. If you don't understand this, it doesn't matter. You do not understand Christianity. On the other hand, if you understand this, you understand what it really means to be a Christian. Christianity is not about religion. Christianity is about a relationship. And that's what Paul wanted. He wanted a relationship with Christ. He didn't want to try to earn God's favor. He wanted fellowship with God. Now, what does it mean when he says, I want to know Christ? Well, that word know can mean any number of things. When we say we know something, it can mean that we understand it, or we comprehend it, or we have some understanding about it. It's the result of serious study. I think, for example, of Jane Goodall, Who was just awarded the Templeton Prize for uh, Science and Religion? If you know who Jane Goodall is, she is an English uh, primatologist. She is the world's foremost expert on the great apes. She is 80 some years old and she spent 60 years of her life living with the great apes and the chimpanzees in the rainforest. And she is widely acknowledged as the foremost expert in the world on this animal's behavior. But while Jane Goodall knows a great deal about the apes, she really can't know the apes. She can't have a relationship with the apes. She can't have fellowship with the apes because fellowship on that level is something that can only be done between souls, spiritual creatures. So when Paul says that he wants to know Christ, he doesn't want to simply know about Christ in the same way that Jane Goodall knows so much about the great apes. He means he wants to know Christ personally, intimately. In fact, Paul says knowing a great deal about something has a tendency to puff somebody up. Do you ever know somebody who's a know-it-all? They know something about everything. I got to tell you, those kinds of people are really irritating they know something about everything. They always have an opinion about something. That's not what Paul is talking about here. When he says, I want to know Christ, he means I want to know them. I want to know him personally. I want to know him intimately. When you say you're a Christian, do you know Christ? Do you know him intimately? Do you spend time with him? Do you fellowship with him? There's an old hymn, not in our hymnal, and um, but it's a, it's a wonderful picture of this kind of intimacy, and it goes like this, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear as I tarry there the Son of God discloses, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. That's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of intimate fellowship, almost like the intimate fellowship between a husband and a wife. That's the kind of fellowship that Paul is talking about here. When he says i want to know christ that's what he means he doesn't mean i simply want to know about christ in the sense that i can know about him by means of academic study there are many people out there who are theology professors who know a great deal about god but they don't know him personally you can know a great deal about the president of the united states or the queen of england without knowing them personally paul says i want to know christ i want to know him personally intimately that's the first thing he wants to know Here's the second thing he says he wants to know. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Now, what does he mean, the power of his resurrection? I think he wants to know the life transforming power that raised Christ from the dead. I pointed out to you before that one of the things that's always struck me as rather profound about the Easter event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Is that following the resurrection, even those closest to Jesus at first had difficulty recognizing him. Now, the Bible goes to great lengths to make it very clear that when Jesus was raised, this was not some sort of spiritual apparition. This was a physical, bodily resurrection. On one occasion, Jesus ate with the Emmaus disciples. He ate with the disciples in the upper room. He told Thomas to come and examine the wounds take your finger, put it in the nail prints, take your hand, put it in the side. So the gospel goes to great lengths to make it very clear it was a physical, bodily resurrection. Jesus ate with his disciples. They touched him. They handled him. They examined his wounds. And yet, oddly enough, people failed to recognize him. Mary Magdalene, who'd spent a great deal of time with Jesus, when she first encountered him weeping there by the tomb, she mistook him for the gardener. The Emmaus disciples walked with him for several miles along the road, and it wasn't until he broke the bread that their eyes were open, and they recognized him for who he was. And when the other disciples went up into the Sea of Galilee to go fishing, you'll recall that they were out there in the boat, and they saw Jesus there on the shore, and he cried out to them, "'Have you caught anything?' And they answered, nothing. We've been out all night toiling. We've caught nothing. And Jesus said, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Those very words that he had used to call them three years prior. And that's when John turned to Peter and he said, it's the Lord. It's got to be the Lord. And Peter put on his cloak, dove into the lake, and swam to shore. The resurrection somehow transformed Jesus. He had a physical body, it was a body that still bore the wounds, and yet Jesus was hardly recognizable to those around him. And not only hardly recognizable, but here's something else. With that physical body, Jesus was able to do things that up to this point he had never been able to do. We're told that in that period between the resurrection and his ascension, Jesus passed back and forth between earth and heaven. He passed through bolted and barred doors. He appeared out of nowhere. In other words, the power that raised Christ from the dead changed him. It made a profound change on him. And when Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, what Paul is saying is, I want to experience that kind of profound change. I want to be able to do things that up to this point I've never been able to do. The very things I don't want to do, those are the things I do, and the very things I hate. Paul says, I want to be able to live for Christ. I want to live a different life. I want to be hardly recognizable to those around me. Do you want to know the power of his resurrection? Are you satisfied with who you are, or do you long to be better than you are? Paul says, I want to know Christ, and in knowing Christ, I want to know the power of his resurrection to change me. Here's the third thing he says. I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. Now, when Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of his suffering, Paul is not saying, I want to be a martyr. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is simply being a realist. Paul understands that if you're going to be serious about following Christ, there will result persecution, hardship, opposition. Peter said that in his first letter. He said, don't be surprised when you face times of great difficulty. Jesus had told Peter and the others that even before he left this earth. He said, if the world has hated me, the world is going to hate me. So when Paul says, I want to know fellowship in his suffering, what Paul is saying is I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection to change me. And I want to be able to stand with him without compromise. I want to be loyal to him. That's what I want. When the rest of the world is going against the grain, I'm against the world, when the rest of the world is going against Christ, I want to stand with him. I want to be loyal to him. That's what Paul is talking about. So he wants to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, fellowship in his suffering. Here's the fourth thing. He said that I may attain the resurrection. Now, when he says attain the resurrection, Paul is not saying that I may earn heaven. Again, he's already come to the realization that there's nothing that he can offer. He has no assets left except for Christ alone. If he's going to be saved, it's going to be saved entirely by the grace of God. But what he means is, I want to enjoy eternity with him. So the resurrection that he's referring to here is the resurrection of the just at the end of the age. When the trump shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise. That's what we say every Sunday when we say the creed. And we believe in the resurrection of the dead. But what is interesting... Is if you look at verse 21, when Paul speaks of the resurrection in the Greek, it's not really talking about a future event. He's talking about a present event. Translating that phrase, I want to know the resurrection, literally means I want to be out from the dead. What Paul is saying is, I want to be like Lazarus. You know what Lazarus was? Lazarus was a walking, talking testimony to the power of God. Lazarus, who had been dead, had been raised. If you read that story in John's gospel, it's really interesting. We're told that after Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, people from all over the surrounding villages came to see this man who, unlike Captain Kirk, really had boldly gone where no man had gone before. He'd experienced death, and he'd come back to tell the tale. In fact, the Pharisees were so angry about this that they, they, they thought that they were going to have to kill Lazarus all over again because he was such a powerful witness to what Christ had done. I sometimes point out that the raising of Lazarus sets the stage for Palm Sunday. If you read through the gospel accounts, you'll notice that those huge crowds that had followed Jesus up in Galilee, sometimes 5,000 men and women and children following Jesus, by the time you get to the end of the gospel, those crowds have dwindled greatly. They like the miracles, but they don't like what Jesus has to say, the implication of those miracles, how they need to acknowledge their sin and turn to God for forgiveness. They're offended by that. And we're told that many of them turned back and followed him no more. But then all of a sudden you get to Palm Sunday and those crowds are back. There's pandemonium. People are tearing the palm branches from the trees, taking off their cloaks, laying them in the path before him, singing Hosanna in the highest. "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.'" What accounts for that dramatic change? What accounts for it is this most public of all Jesus' miracles and the most dramatic of all of his miracles where he raises this man, Lazarus, who'd been in the tomb for four days, whose body had started to decompose. Jesus raises him from the dead. And hundreds of people are eyewitnesses to it. And just by virtue of his presence, Lazarus is a testimony to the power of God. Paul says, that's what I want to know. I want to know Christ. I want to know him personally. I want to know him intimately. I want to know his power, the power of his resurrection to change me, to make me hardly recognizable to those around me. I want to know his suffering. I want to stand with him. I want to be loyal to him, not to compromise. And I want people to say, there is a man who once was dead, but he is now alive, and by my very presence, be a witness to God. You want to know the same thing? Do you want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection? You want to join in the fellowship of his suffering and attain to his resurrection? That's what Paul says it means to be a Christian. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about this epistle to the Philippians. But this is a good place for us to stop. I encourage you to go ahead and read through the rest of this book, and I encourage you to pay special attention to chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, if you know Christ, if you know the power of his resurrection, if you're enjoying or if you're in the fellowship of his suffering, If you're enduring the suffering for the sake of Christ, and if you are really living as a testimony to him, someone who is dead but has been raised to life again, then he says remember to concentrate on whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul is saying that maintaining this fellowship takes some effort. Salvation is a free gift, but living in fellowship with Christ, enjoying this fellowship, is something that takes effort. You have to flee temptation, because it will come, Paul says. And you have to think. You have to think positively on those things that are honorable, those things that are just, those things that are pure and noble and lovely and praiseworthy, You have to strap on that full armor of God that you may take your stand in the last days. And if you do, then he says, the God of peace will be with you. The peace that Paul talks about there is not merely an absence of conflict. In this life, there will always be conflict. There will always be difficulty. The Jewish word is shalom. It means peace of mind. It means peace of heart. It's what we say in the liturgy, that peace which passes human understanding. If you know Christ, if you know the power of his resurrection, if you are enduring suffering and standing loyalty to him, if you're doing all of those things, then Paul says you will enjoy that peace, that joy which the world cannot understand. Until we meet again in September for this Bible study, my prayer is that you will enjoy that same peace and that joy. And if you don't have that relationship with Christ, you will come to have it. And if you do have it, you'll work on this relationship with Christ that you may enjoy the peace which he offers. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this great letter to the Philippians. We thank you for Paul's life and witness. We thank you for the fact that all of those things that he once counted as such assets, he came to realize really mattered for nothing by comparison to the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior. May the same be said for us. There are many things, Lord, that we're proud of but make us to be proud most of all of the fact that Christ Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for us and freely offered his blood on our behalf, that whatever liabilities we may have, they might be blotted out, that we might come into a right relationship with him to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. It's in his name we pray. Amen.